Hello and welcome to The Culture Bunker, your pop culture podcast roundup. I'm Sean Pattenden. And I'm Andrew Harrison. This week, we are thrilled to be joined mid-tour by Norman Blake of guitar rock stalwarts Teenage Fan Club. And just say nay, we watch spy thriller Slow Horses on Apple TV, starring Gary Oldman and Kristen Scott Thomas. Plus, we listen to dub legend Horace Andy's brand new album, Midnight Rocker, made in collaboration with Adrian Sherwood. And they think it's all over. It probably is. We watched the Paul Gascoigne documentary simply titled Gaza, which is out next week on BBC Two. All this and more on today's Culture Bunker. Welcome to the Culture Bunker, the weekly pop culture and entertainment roundup from the bunker. Dialing in from far afield, it's our special guest, Jurgen Klopp Lookalike and founding <laughs> member of Teenage Fan Club, Norman Blake. Hi, Norman. Hi there, Andrew. How are you doing? Not bad. Where are you and what's happening? Where are you well, dialing in from? Sure. Right now, I'm in the production office at the Sheffield Leadmill, uh, the venue that's actually threatened with closure. Next, I don't know if you've read that story. Uh, and, you know, it's been, like I say, I guess everyone's been through here from Cabaret Voltaire to Pulp to Arctic Monkeys or whatever, you know. So it's a very important place. Yes, absolutely. Everybody's furious about this. Ravers, indie pop people and, and everybody in between. So enjoy it while it's still there. <laughs> What's it like being back out in the world then now that everything's opened up? How, how's, how's it been for the fannies? Well, it's great, actually. Um, this is the only the second night. Uh, we played in Glasgow a couple of nights ago, so this is the second show of a five-and-a-half-week tour. It's what you want to be doing as a musician. Uh, you want to go out and play the songs that you've recorded and, you know, see how people react to them. So, so great. Yeah, we're really happy to be doing it. And, um, uh, yeah, but, like I say, it's day two, so we're still uh, so just, uh, I, I guess, dusting off the cobwebs. Exactly. We'll come back in three weeks. You'll be bored rigid by then. You'll be sick of it. Day two, the bloom's still on it. Teenage yeah. Fan Club will be playing a string of evocative venues, including yeah. the Oslo Vulcan and Copenhagen Pumperhuset. We'll be talking <laughs> to Norman a bit later, but who else is joining us, Sean? Pete Brown is a British author, journalist and consultant specialising food, but mainly beer. Hello. And as his bio says, he likes the fun parts. Beer, pub, cider, bacon rolls and fish and chips, which sounds exactly like the fun parts we like, Andrew, isn't it? Yes. He's a regular on the food programme and was named British Beer Writer of the Year in 2009, 2012 and 2016. Are there any more, Pete? And 2021. I yeah. knew you were going to say there was another one. Welcome, Pete. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Nice to be in the studio again. Nice to have you. Now, you held a beer tasting fundraiser last night for Ukraine. Tell us about that. Yeah, so there's a group of people called uh, Drinkers for Ukraine, uh, which is organised by this fantastic woman who I know who was a Ukrainian beer writer, Ukraine's first beer sommelier. Oh. Uh, she's based in the UK now. And we just wanted to, you know, obviously like everybody wants to, to do something to help. And I'm, I don't earn, beer writing isn't a lucrative profession, I have to say. So it's more about the perks, isn't it? Really? It is, it <laughs> is. And the pork scratchings. And the perks are I get given a lot of free beer. Yes. So I've got a cellar at home which has a lot of beers in it that are uh, that were originally brewed for ageing. So I decided to get my six most treasured beers out and have an auction for places at a tasting, which took place in London last night. Oh, wow. So we had uh, the world's oldest drinkable beer, uh, Ratcliffe Ale, brewed in 1869. Wow, uh, There's about 20 bottles of it left and there's now 19. Wow. So. How much that How for? did it taste as well? Yeah. Do you know what? With a bottle like that, if the wax, it's, it's got a cork and then a wax seal around the cork. And if the wax has been broken and the cork's been mm-hmm. up to the air, it's going to taste like wet cardboard. Mm-hmm. And my version had a full wax seal on it, 
boat had that wax seal been put on after years of it being sitting by a radiator with no seal. So basically we opened it, found out that the wax seal was intact. Uh, it's been cellared for really good condition for 150 years and it tasted absolutely wonderful. Oh my God. It had some acidity to it. It was like a sherry. It had kind of a, a nuttiness, like a marzipan character to mm. it. It tasted nothing like beer. More like a really a really amazing Madeira port sherry type. And what kind of um, alcohol content is in something So it was brewed... It would have been a brood to about 10%, yeah. but I think it's, I don't think there's much alcohol left in it by now. Oh, I, I presumed it was the other way around. It'd be like 50%. It does it, it does go up, and there's yeah. just weird different ageing things happen. So it goes up for a few years, a few decades, and then it starts kind of decaying mm. and turning into something else again. Good Lord. Yes, We've things that things. you learned, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Now, the beer awards, they sound awful. They're around the corner, <laughs> aren't they? Oh, they can't be much fun at all. Tell us about the beer awards. Uh, yeah, and uh, this, the beer marketing awards, which I set up, mm. uh, there's lots of award schemes for how beers taste, and so there should be. That's the most important yeah. thing. But we've got 2,000 breweries now in the UK, and if your beer tastes fantastic and you've got rubbish packaging or rubbish promotion, no one's going to find it. So I set up with some friends this scheme in 2015 and we awarded things like uh, best best can design and best use of best, best it's going to be best TikTok now, isn't it? Probably yeah. this year. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so we, I get to stand on stage and give gongs out and make rude jokes about mm-hmm. people in the brewing industry. So that's... The Oscars of the yes. beer marketing people. Now, just before we started recording, we were hearing from Norman about uh, the beer made by Go-Kart Mozart's uh, Lawrence from Felton made for made Go-Kart. for not actually by it <laughs> no. and how perhaps the packaging might not have been fantastic because it, it might explode on you so yes. what's going on with these pop star beers and their explosive nature so about 10 years ago we started making beers with all these uh, nice tropical fruit notes in the American hops so oh there's a hint of pineapple in this one there's a hint of mango in this one hints don't do it for brewers anymore so they go hint of pineapple from the hops you say let's chuck a load of pineapple puree in there let's mm. chuck a load of mango puree in there also people like their beers hazy now so they're not filtered oh. which means there's some residual yeast in a closed space with loads of unfermented sugar it's a recipe for disaster <laughs> it's a recipe for disaster so you know when you get a carton of orange juice and it's really old and it kind of the packaging expands that's yeah. because there's residual alcohol in the juice and it's fermenting the sugar and yeah. it's all kind of creating a lot of CO2 and you, you're a teenager and you think it might get you a bit drunk yeah so it doesn't but no. yeah but but yeah you, what you have is lots of CO2 so that builds up in these cans and you've got exploding shrapnel okay. in everyone's beer pop stars uh, beware Choose your lagers carefully. Absolutely. Before we move on, listeners, a reminder. You can get the Culture Bunker and all of our shows early and without adverts on them when you support us on Patreon. Politics, science, business, philosophy, pop culture, beer brewing, we do it all. (laughs) And Patreon people get all manner of exciting merchandise too. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how to back our endless war against boredom. Now you heard him earlier. We are thrilled to have Norman Blake from Teenage Fan Club with us today. We're going to have a chat in a moment, but first let's listen to the surprise single, I Left a Light On. It's on our playlist, of course. What's this about, Norm? Well, you know, it's always the hardest question to answer what's this song about. Um, I've been through a relationship breakup, uh, maybe about a year and a half of feeling pretty miserable. (laughs) So eventually with that kind of thing, you come through the other side and uh, you sort of start to sort of, you know, feel a bit more positive about life. So it's kind of about that, really, you know, looking forward, being positive and sort of redemption. And uh, But, yeah, but um, it's always the hardest thing to... It's always a difficult question to answer. What's this song about? Um, hopefully, it's about four minutes. what Rob said there has kind of explained pretty much what yes. it's about. <laughs> well, I think it's a beautiful piece of music and moving well, and empowering for the particular times that we're in at the moment. Should we have a listen? Sure. A satellite was falling 
album Endless Arcade we talked about it last year it was released a whole year ago does it feel like a complete age away uh, yes and in a way it does when you make an album on the week of release you'll have a tour lined up you know sort of six weeks of whatever but because of the pandemic uh, there was a sort of build-up to the release of the record so you know you do try and do lots of interviews and try and get people to review it and so that all builds up to the day of release and then the day after release everything sort of just stopped you know, and so it was. It was really strange for us to be in that situation. Uh, well, we did get to play two, I think, two or three shows to sort of promote the album, and we did one festival. But that's been it. So this is the first chance we've had to go and tour properly. Um, and so we're obviously, as you can imagine, we're really excited to be doing that. And here we are in Sheffield on day two. Mm. I mean, you talk about that sort of waiting for the reception, and because you're not playing live. It doesn't yeah. sort of come. But the reviews come in. I mean, it got fantastic reception from the so-called critics, but also the fans. Um, yeah. Which was your favourite review? I asked this because in the 90s, your label creation put a one-page ad in the music press just to get back at one bad review, the headline being nine out of ten cats prefer teenage <laughs> fan club. Yeah, that's probably for older listeners too. <laughs> the, Let's uh, remind was them. It, was it Whiskers? Uh, nine out of ten cats prefer Whiskers. What happened was uh, we had, well, we got pretty good, it was for a Grand Prix album, we got pretty good reviews and someone wrote, wrote a real stinker. Now, here's the thing, I, listen, we're really not worried about reviews. People can say, if people don't like your album, that's fair enough. You know, you, you can't expect everyone or anyone to like what you do. Um, but someone, I think it was a, a particularly nasty review, yeah, a bit personal, right? So we, we were kind of miffed at that. But we'd got really great reviews from other people, so we were talking talk, yeah, it was, it was, which was great. So we um, were talking to Alan Miguel, we gave it this, and it was Jerry from the band who had sort of come up with the idea that why don't we, it would be great if we could take, you know, the back page and Melody, I think it was Melody Maker the review was in, it would be great if we could take out the back page and, you know, like sort of post nine of these sort of, and we chose the, the best, the choicest comments, you know, best album of the, or whatever, you know, just that, you know, over the top comes with so we put nine of those in and then we put the a quote from the stinker which i think was something like this band should be resigned to the dustbin of history something like that and then they so they they were that was somewhere in the middle of the 10 quotes and at the top it said or at the bottom i can't quite remember it said nine Mm. out of ten cats prefer teenage fan club but anyway jerry came up with this idea and mcgee said I'm going to do it. And so yeah, I think it cost him three grand mm. at the time to take out the full back page and the melody maker. And so that's, that's <laughs> the story. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, so that's really down to Alan McGee. Yeah, and you've not done it since. No, we can't afford to do that. Creation <laughs> can afford that, but we, we can't afford to do that. Fair enough. The album, um, Endless Arcade, is chock full of melancholy. It's about looking back. It is very wistful. Yeah. How do you feel when you're playing the album live now, playing those songs maybe you're not in the same place? 
Yeah, I, you know, I think you, you'll write a song and then when you're writing it, it's quite personal, but um, after you've played it, it becomes more of a performance. That's not to say that you won't do your best to perform it well, but, you know, it's more about the performance than it is about the sentiment in a way, you know. Of course, we're still singing songs that we wrote 30 years ago, you know, and um, it's a very different person then, a much younger person, you know, I'm getting much closer to the the end of my life now than, I, you know, when I was writing those songs, I was just setting out as a young person. I think we still have you know, a certain amount of pride in the music that we made back then, and we can still relate to it in a way. Um, but, you know, you're kind of a different person. It's a long, long time ago, you know, so um, I think you do detach. It's more of a performance uh, in a way after you know, send them at a time. Now, looking back at the creation years, we mentioned creation. Would anyone have predicted so many bands would be together after 30 years with far less casualties than some of the major labels? It's a funny thing, isn't it? Yeah, I isn't mean, it? I, I suppose some of the bands have kind of been, I mean, ourselves and Primal Scream have had a kind of unbroken sort of, you know, run. Uh, some bands have gone, maybe, I guess, Raid uh, have had sort of broken up and then they came back together. They've done really well and they've been out touring. It's great to see those guys out doing that again too. I suppose there have been some casualties along the way. It's, it, not to be uh, too dark about this, but it tended to be across the Atlantic where the casualties happen. There's quite a few people I've known from the States that are, are no longer with us, you know. Maybe we just went into the same drugs here or something. I don't Do you know, think it's the, sto- the stoic Scottish character? Uh, is that. a bit better at, uh, <laughs> at outlasting these, these people? Then? It, it may well be that, I'm not sure, but yeah. But um, no, it's amazing that people are still around. I think there's a different uh, attitude to older artists now, in a way. I think, uh, if you think, I always think I look back at people thinking that the Beatles were kind of over, uh, you know, around the time of Abbey Road, and, you know, they were in their late 20s. Um, I think people are more forgiving. So you can you can be in your forties and even fifties or whatever, and, and yeah, you're allowed now. Aren't you're kind you of allowed now? to be making yeah. music and making new music. It's not just a nostalgia. We don't see ourselves at all as a nostalgia act. You know, um, we always think of ourselves as being contemporary. We're, we're always interested in playing our latest songs, you know, and working in new music and going forward. Uh, you know, having a forward momentum. Um, and uh, you can do that now, I think, and people are more accepting of it. Are you disappointed you didn't make it into the Alan McGee biopic? We aren't in there. I mean, I guess there are, you know, it's, I, haven't, you know I haven't seen the movie, but I, I was offered a cameo role in it. Oh, were you? As as yourself or as a something else? Yeah, it was going to be like a, a work colleague or whatever of Alan McGee's in the shipyards. Um, so I had to, I don't know, I had to, I had to maybe had to sort of deliver a line. Alan, go and get me a spanner or something like that. <laughs> Which, uh, anyway, I, I thought, you know what? I don't know if I, I want to go there. So that was, but yeah, the band aren't in there, but I could, I was potentially going to be in there, but it didn't happen then. You know, imagine being a boiler suit looking a bit dirty, holding a spanner. I think uh, that would have worked. Well, yeah, it might have been. Yeah. 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 So is there a, last question, is there a decent mosh pit still with the fan club, with the fannies? Have you got people really going mad up front? No, there's no mosh pit. It hasn't been for many, many oh. years. Um, oh, I'll uh, start one. We do insist that there is a, a defibrillator in the building, though. No. <laughs> <laughs> Quite right, okay. too. Fine. Well, yeah, Norman's you know. going to disappear for a bit, but he may well reappear later in the podcast. Every week, we ask our guests to bring on a current favourite tune to expand the listener's point of view. Pete Brown, what has been rocking your Walkman? Walk person, we call them, actually, these past few weeks. Well, every time a new British Sea Power album, sorry, Sea Power now, uh, Mm -hmm. album comes out, it's like a birthday. I love their kind of 
mix of anthemic and pastoral. The track of the new album that I've chosen that I, that is a proper earworm at the moment is Green Goddess. Mm-hmm. And it's perfect British sea power because they could be singing some pastoral hymn to nature's beauty or they could be singing about a 1970s army fire engine. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's both things and yeah, that's just yeah. that's just sea power to a team. Or they could be singing about the woman who used to do the fitness on uh, yes. Good Morning Britain Absolutely. in the early 80s. All, yes. of, well, all of which would be totally sea power. Totally sea power, <laughs> yeah. They actually did a lovely acoustic version of this, especially did, for us on yes. the podcast oh, in, you're in February or whatever. So It's beautiful. It's Tears beautiful. the eye, that is. Absolutely. The, the track after that on the album called Lakeland Echo and it's a similar thing where it's like because they grew up in the Lake District obviously and oh yeah these lovely kind of memories of beautiful vistas and that kind of thing and they're actually singing about a local newspaper that they used to deliver yeah so (laughs) they just wander around the Lake District just looking at things and going let's call this one bus stuff yes it's a chip shop (laughs) quite right too beautiful mountain right let's listen the full thing of course is on our rolling playlist Friendly bombs. Time for some telly and Apple TV's Slow Horses, starring Gary Oldman and Kristen Scott Thomas. It is set in the dismal Slough House, which is where old MI5 agents go to die. Breakfast starts late and is poured into a huge glass. Based on the books by Mick Heron, will this post-smiley landscape fit well on the small screen? Let's hear the trailer. I, I don't normally do these kind of speeches, but this feels like a big moment. I know it's not easy being banished from MI5 to my department, but that's on you. Only screw-ups get sent to Slough House, and I've got to be honest, working with you has been the lowest point in a disappointing career. Right. What are you looking for? The remnants of a once-promising career. Slough House is like prison. You're not supposed to ask what you're in for. I actually want to be useful. I could not be more bored if I tried. You probably know how many people have made it back from Slough House to upstairs here at Regent's Park. Bringing you up the speed's like trying to explain Norway to a dog. None. Come check this out. Hostage. She's being held here. There is something finally happening. What has it got to do with you? Whatever's going on will be handled by the real agents. I get it, we're just slow horses. I've got one lead, but I have to follow up. You're going to help me? Oh, no, I'm not. Like it or not, Slough House is part of this now. What do you think you're playing at? I didn't mean to kill him. Of course you didn't. If you meant to kill him, he'd still be alive. Now, Pete Brown, am I right in thinking you were very much looking forward to this? And can you set up what Slow Horses is? Yes. So Slow Horses is from a series of books by McCarran, as you said. And uh, my wife Liz found out about it because uh, Will Smith, not the slappy one, the one who used to be in the thick of it, is yeah. a local resident. My wife runs the Stoke Newton Literature Festival. And Will, given that he's hugely successful and brilliant and talented, 
is one of the most modest guys we've ever met. Who's like, oh, can I do something at the festival this year? And it's like, yeah, of course you can. Well, what do you want to do? Oh, I've I've just translated Mick Heron's books, adapted them for TV. Do you think that'd be all right to interview <laughs> Mick Heron? It's like, oh, go on then. So, <laughs> so Liz has been raving, urging me to read mm. these books. Mm. She, uh, as soon as Will uh, told her about them, she just sat down and read the whole series straight through. Absolutely gripped by the books, mm-hmm. and it's looking like the TV is a really, really good uh, adaptation of it. It struck a chord with me because I, I, the interesting bit about it is the in theory the, the main characters are all screw ups they're all uh, failures and so it's like well how can they be at the centre of a given that there's five books now it's yes. like well they, they can't keep on being failures can they so, so there's, there's an interesting dynamic there I mean it's you know tense pacey action they're, they're ten a penny the, the interesting mm. thing about it is the, is the premise of them being failures and, and why they're there and some of them aren't perhaps the failures that you think they are that they've been set up and things like that so, Andrew, yes, the first scene is very much, I feel, taken from the Jed Mercurio <clears throat> yes, well, where we are confronted with something that is of epic scale. And I'm trying not to do a spoiler here, but how did that fit? Well, it's, I mean, it's it's uh, it's set up to explain why uh, a certain key character is at Slough House, the mm. uh, dumping ground for failed MI5 mm-hmm. agents. And I don't think we need to say much more than that. But we are dumped very much in, um, you know, into the fast lane in the first couple of minutes. Yes. And at that level, it's fantastically well constructed. And I, I've not read the books at all. I love the idea of the setup, the idea of, of the, you know, the losers, the dumping ground, the ones who've failed finding a, a purpose. And some of them, mm. as, as Pete says, not being quite the fails that you thought. So there's a whole load of redemption arcs on here. And there's yes. a whole load also of uh, looking down upon them by the people who consider themselves to be and fully they, endorsed uh, agents. They're in the MI5, which is called Park, which relates to Regent's Park, where mm. they're high tech offices and they're clearly the successful ones, aren't and they? And Sl- Slough House is what every single British office yeah. was like until about 1995. It's filthy, it's banisters with dirty thumb marks all over it, Mm. rubbish everywhere, everything's Mm. brown, nothing works. You've got to get into it through a dirty back entry around the back of uh, of, of some back alley in in Barbican. Mm. And it really does feel like sleek modernity versus grungy old British filth. At that level, I I really enjoyed it. Mm. However, I have my issues with the pitching of the performances, which are very, very broad. They're very, I mean... Maybe Pete can tell us a bit about Jackson Lamb, the uh, the Gary Oldman character. Yeah, I mean, he's the kind of lynch... He, he seems to just sit yeah. at his desk drinking, smoking and swearing at his, yeah. his team. He's the patriarch of, of a crumbling system. At yeah. Least that's how we see him first, isn't it? And, and he's... And there's obviously some, some history between him and the, the main spy in the nice place as well. <laughs> uh, why did he end up here? Why is he allowed to do what he wants? And it, when, as soon as you hear that Gary Oldman's playing this guy... You can imagine what Gary Oldman's performance is going to be like, and it's exactly as you imagine it's going to be. And I like him for that. It's mm. it's, it's it's like he's going to do this, and he does yeah. exactly what you expect. He's on to brand. Do. He's totally on brand, yeah. and he's and he's and he's great. And he goads his agents. He tells them continually that they're failures. He tells them not to do anything. He tells them not to have any initiative. But he's he's doing a bit of clever psychology. He's actually mm. pushing them to to be all they can be. Mm. Yeah, I mean, my issue with it was that while we've sold a uh, a, a grim and realistic mm. image of what espionage is now as the smiley circus novels and TV series yes. were in the 70s, 80s, the idea that there is no dashing and daring do. It's yes, just, this is very much post-smiley, um, yeah, isn't it? It's, but it's, it's grindingly slow uh, dog work. And this is post-smiley in the sense that it's stripped down even further. Yeah. So there isn't even the kind of style and panache that Smiley's mm. got. Mm. These people are not, um, you know, 
products of the best public schools who happen to have fallen into a seedy business. Mm. They're actually just a, a random rabble. Yeah. And that, I thought, fitted very much with now. My problem with it, with it is that a lot of key characters are... You know, the only word I can find for it is too TV-ish, shall we say. Okay. So we've got our we've yeah. got our hacker, right? Yes. Who is the most cliched hacker you can possibly imagine? Mm-hmm. He's mean. He's antisocial. Uh, he sits in front of a curved screen, rattling on keyboards and drinking fizzy pop, mm. and behaving exactly like you would expect a hacker to behave. Yes. And I wanted it to be different. I want I wanted there to be something that played against type. Right. Jackson Lamb himself. I couldn't see the crack or the twinkle or the bit of something special that made people not simply walk out of the room because all he seems to do is just abuse his staff. There wasn't that thing that that Smiley has, which is, you know, the notion that behind this mask of inactivity, some powerful thought is on the go. Mm -hmm. And all I can see is him sitting there, you know, drinking whiskey in his socks. To me, it's a great, great setup for a TV show that is delivered in a manner that is far too nine o'clock on BBC One and hasn't really kind of right. hit the the kind of competitive heights that you expect from streaming services where drama has to be a, a lot more sophisticated. We have to have a sense that these characters have much more of an interior life. We have to have the sense that the stories are being driven much more by these by the characters' interior lives. And I felt that this was, you know, I'm up for a, a plot-driven thing, mm-hmm. but I felt that these were not characters that kind of existed outside that TV shall we say, context, mm-hmm. where everybody is a very, very heightened version of one characteristic. Yes, absolutely. What did you think? I'm going to say the two words Killing Eve here because what Killing Eve did was mm. take something that usually is quite hackneyed and cliched and made the characterization so good and so what you didn't expect. Mm. And twists are really within the psychology of the characters rather than the plot, which is yeah. them being told there and someone else will reveal and then there's an exposition there. That's I really enjoyed this, but I enjoyed it. There wasn't that extra thing, which I think that's where yeah. Phoebe Waller-Bridge. It's very exciting. It's very exciting. Seat. It moves along at a banging pace. And something that we haven't mentioned is the is the actual plot mode of the first episode. I was going to ask about yes. Yeah, so there's homegrown terrorism. There's something that is spun on its head. Is that what? Well, you're yeah. I mean, there's, there's a, I don't think this constitutes a, yeah. a spoiler. There is a kidnap yeah. of a student at Leeds University. At Leeds University, yeah. I, I felt seen by what what turns out to be a group of far right terrorists who are, and I don't think this counts as a spoiler, they're going to behead him on TV. Now, I didn't buy that because when British far-right terrorists identify themselves as anything at all, it's in opposition to what ISIS mm-hmm. and Islamist terrorism will do. Yeah. It just seems to be, I, I just simply didn't buy it. I mean, there are, not to in any way excuse British far-right terrorists, but I just don't <laughs> think they do that particular <laughs> thing. They do something else atrocious. Mm. One of the most enthralling aspects of the Smiley series mm. was you felt that this is the way it really is mm. based on nothing yeah. based only on the performance in the script and I watched this and I didn't think that this is the way it really is I felt that I was watching a very very exciting really well done pot boiler but I didn't feel like I'd had the curtain pulled aside for me maybe there's more to come maybe, maybe there maybe, is more to come. Maybe I hope there is maybe there's some kind of subtle uh Oh, this is this is what you were meant to think, and I, I think that quite often about some of these series. And sometimes it turns out that there's just a bit of really clunky plotting, mm. and you're like, "Oh, that's a shame." Uh, and sometimes like you, you're trying to think smarter than the writers sometimes. Yeah. But I think in this, some of these characters have got hidden depths that mm. we're going to find out. Maybe I should read the books. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you should read the books. One question: Are USB sticks that easy to steal? 
<laughs> and then really quickly copy and then give yes. back. I did think that I wanted something slightly more realistic about what a fucking tedious thing it is to get get one and then copy it and put it in a folder and then it mess up. And then well, and this then is it. this is a recurring thing in your spy fiction, yeah. isn't it? It's like and now we do the internet bit and we see <laughs> yes. some screens yeah. filled with numbers and which yes. don't look anything keyboards. like real screens. Do. Absolutely yeah. not. Yeah. And don't take the time and don't no. crash and yeah. do all the things that screens do. Which I would actually love that to happen in, a, in a, some spy season. Just sit there and go. So it's, we've got the operating system updated. Hang on, I need an app twenty <laughs> yeah. minutes later. You know that that yeah. tedious thing of actually dealing with uh, with IT instead of ooh, there's the tech whiz in the corner. Ooh, he's reading a comic book mm. while drinking an energy drink. <laughs> <laughs> he's going to have some avocado on toast because he's yeah, in he his can't afford a house. Yes. <laughs> well, I quite enjoyed it. I agree, mm. but I think. Having read someone write, oh, three or four in, it then gets more interesting. I'm going to wait till it gets more interesting because I think there's yeah. more to it. Okay. Mm. But I'm going to Clunkiness persist. I think I'm going to so, persist. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we'd recommend it. I'm going to keep Hormley. going. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Wobbling thumb up. Now, the classic Walt Disney animation of the 30s and 40s has a very particular look, and you might be surprised where it came from. A new exhibition at the Wallace Collection in London called Inspiring Walt Disney, the animation of French decorative arts, shows how all those talking clocks and anthropomorphic wardrobes had their roots in French 18th century art. Our own Yelena Sofronievich and Alex Andreo went down to have a look, and they talked to the exhibition curator, Dr Helen Jacobson. So this exhibition is a collaboration with the Met. We see everything from concept art to horse to the original sketches in Beauty and the Beast. It's a real wide range. And what's really interesting is seeing the artistic process behind it. But many of these objects are actually on their first display in Europe. Can you tell me about Walt Disney and his fascination with Europe? Why did he come to engage with these stories? Well, he first came to, to Europe as a very, very young man. He actually forged his birth certificate, the date of his birth, so that he was able to join up with the war effort. And he came to Europe for the first time in 1918, when he was actually literally 16 and the next day he was 17. So very, very young man. And he spent a whole year in France driving for the ambulance corps, the Red Cross Ambulance Corps. So that obviously made a, a distinct impression on him. I mean, he came from the Midwest, Kansas City. So, so to be in France, in Paris, in Versailles, surrounded by this extraordinary 18th century architecture and the grandeur of the French past must have been earth-shattering for him, really. When he went back to the States, he concentrated very much on getting his business off the ground and building the studio. But soon, in the 1930s, came back on a major grand tour of Europe. And it was then that I think we can really see he was buying French books, he was buying fairy stories, illustrated fairy stories, and it's the visual culture particularly that he's engaging with, and the literary traditions of 18th century French fairy stories. And then, back in the States again, he was working on these ideas, I think, throughout his life. He never did get to, to make Beauty and the Beast himself, but it was something that he tried to work on, and was made after his, after his death. You point out a collection of porcelains in the exhibition that you say viewers always look at and say that looks like a Disney castle. Do you think that Disney could be a good point of access for people into the Wallace collection? I do hope so because these objects are really remarkable and absolutely stunning 
And in the Wallace Collection, there are really over a hundred of these beautiful vases and cups and saucers. People find it quite difficult to look at them when there are so many. But what we've done by taking a few examples and put them downstairs in the exhibition gallery, or even those wonderful loans that you're talking about, the, the castles, the turret castles, I think they really benefit from looking closely and close up. And that's what we try to do in the exhibition. One of my favourite parts of the exhibition, we see the 24 stills that are used to create the fantastic animation of Cinderella. The twinkle of stars fall over her and her dress changes. And you mentioned that it takes something like half a million of these stills to make one animated film. But there's still quite a distaste amongst British audiences for showing animation and moving images next to still ones. How do you think this exhibition challenges that? I think it actually often brings out something in the still that you don't see if you don't see it along alongside the moving image. So we have, as you say, these 24 drawings which go to make up one second of animation. And then we have an 18-second animated sketch, so you can see the 18 seconds of animation. They wouldn't mean the same thing at all if you couldn't see the still drawings next to it. And similarly, I think the still drawings actually matter more when you see the film clip going on next to it because it's quite difficult to see how these cartoons work, these animations work, unless you actually see the working drawings. And what we've tried to do is to put as many of the working drawings on display to give you an idea of the technology and of how it actually happens. So I think it's actually very important to have the the moving image there as well as the still drawing. I love seeing the concept art in this exhibition. There are these fantastic sketches of Lumiere. They're dotted all over with instructions for animators saying no toilet hand and don't bend like this. And there's a lot of humour actually in these illustrations. Do you think that the exhibition really brings to light the individual illustrators, perhaps the women and the men who are often overlooked by this collaborative project. Well, I hope we've done that. And in fact, I know what's been really remarkable is that at the Met show, a number of the Disney artists visited the show and they were absolutely thrilled, of course, to see that there was some of their work in the show. And going round with my colleague, Wolf Burchard, who was the curator at the Met, they said, oh, that's mine. And that's mine. And in fact, sometimes we have been able to attribute works that the Disney Animation Research Library did not know. So yes, we have, and I really feel good about that. And what I love is that downstairs in the exhibition here, we've attributed all the works that we can. And so every drawing that you see has got a name by it. And and I think that's very important. It's the practice now in Disney Studios to employ culturally sensitive panels to advise on the art of the film they're making so they will employ Hawaiian folklorists to advise on the art for Moana or Colombian curators and historians to advise on the art for Encanto and I look at the exhibition here and Snow White has a very Germanic feel to it which is based on a Grimm's tale while Cinderella has a distinctly French flavour to it which is on a tale by Perrault and I can't quite work out whether they are the beginning of cultural appropriation that ended with the new practices or they are the beginning of cultural sensitivity actually that carries on today. What do you think? Yeah, it's a very interesting question. I think the one thing I do often feel is that although we think of Disney as such an American 
organization and corporation. Many, many of the artists working for Disney in the 30s and 40s and 50s were actually Europeans, for example. And it was their European background that informed, perhaps, some of the things that they were doing. So I'm sure it wasn't conscious at that stage, but I feel that that one can't overlook that there is a, a European input into the drawing, some of the drawings that we see. Now, music. If you've got any of the classic original Massive Attack albums, you'll be familiar with the otherworldly voice of Horace Andy, original Jamaican vocalist, famous for Skylarking and You Are My Angel, and possibly for a full re-recording of OK Computer in the reggae style under the name Radio Dread. He's now back for a late career renaissance with esteemed reggae obsessive Adrian Sherwood on the renowned On You Sound label. Listeners of a vintage age may be able to credit Adrian Sherwood with their connection to reggae. Midnight Rocket is Horace Andy's new album. He's 71 years old, his album's out today, and amongst other things, it features his very particular take on Massive Attack's Safe From Harm, as well as new versions of beloved tunes including Mr. Basie, Materialist, and the one we're going to play, This Must Be Hell. What's it like? Is it any good? And what makes the Horace Andy voice what it is? We'll find out after This Must Be Hell. Full version on the playlist, of course. Brown, how rutical are you on a scale of one to praise jar? <laughs> More than I was after listening to this. Really? Uh, yeah, it's not. I, I don't listen to a lot of reggae and, and dub, but I, back in the day, really, really used to enjoy Adrian Sherwood on You Sound, mm. and this feels like the album that he was born to make. Yes. It's such a great collaboration with his arrangement and his production and, and Horace and his voice. It's just like they they bring out more in each other than I've ever heard in either of them apart. And that voice at 71 is yeah. somehow miraculous. We all know that you, you lose your range and mm-hmm. uh, and your voice cracks and you can't reach the high notes anymore when you get to a certain age. And he's just still belting it out. It's absolutely incredible. Yeah, I saw him at the Jazz Cafe. It was like the first thing I saw after the end of lockdown because he'll go to gigs. Or he'll go to gigs once more, rather. And it was remarkable because, you know, he's, as you say, not in the first flush of youth, but not just in the sense that he can belt it out, but in the sense that he's still got a connection to the material. Mm. It's like you felt somebody is not just vocalising here, they are inhabiting and fully expressing the song. Absolutely. At a time when most people are frankly burnt out and half dead. No, I mean, I think testament to that is uh, my one beef with it is that lyrically it was a real downer, at least for the first half of the <laughs> album. And, and I, I was there thinking, God, he's had a really miserable life, hasn't he? So <laughs> isn't, this, isn't this kind of endemic to Roots Reggae? Because the, the themes are... The tribulations and iniquities of Babylon and trodding through it and the general downness of uh, modern society, uh, how you need to like not think about money and yep. think about love 
and you need to think about being righteous and <laughs> um, other things like yes. that. There is the sort of the slight finger wag that goes with any sort of spiritually inclined record. Yes. I'm looking at you, George Harrison. Um, <laughs> yes. It's, it's, it's all the way through Roots Reggae and you just have to kind of go with it. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's, I mean, the, the, the sound of it is, is, is just wonderful. Mm. And the, the Safe From Harm is, is, my, is my standout. It's, uh, it makes Massive Attack sound a bit dull and over-polished, which is, that's extraordinary that you can do that. It's, there's such a menace to it. Yeah, that bass line, which I think is off a Billy Cobham record, isn't it? That famous do 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 They play it rather than sort of bring in the, the, the sample, and mm. it does have that real sort of sense of threat. But it has that thing that used to fascinate me when I didn't really... When reggae was a new thing to me, when roots reggae, sort of like late 70s, early 80s, was a new thing to me, it's like, how can this be so menacing and yet so beautiful at the same mm. time? What did you think, Sean? I really enjoyed it. Mm. Um, again, it's Adrian Sherwood probably introduced me via sound systems and via any sort of special DJ slots um, to an enormous amount of music that I hadn't heard before. And this brings it back. I say from, from Harm, I've kind of had on a loop listening to the album a few times this morning, but going back to say from mm-hmm. Harm again. Yeah, I think it's superior to the Massive Attack version. It is produced, uh, Peter's right, absolutely beautifully. And then you put headphones on and then you hear it even more. I just think it's, it, again, it's got the finger wagging, but that's what I expect and that's what I want. I want mm. someone older to tell me I'm doing it wrong because <laughs> that's what people are older meant to do. The video I think you were going to mention for Safe From Harm, please yes. do because that's well, rather special. There's a remarkable it? video of um, Horace going down to the metal shop yeah. to sharpen up his cutlass because mm. you need your cutlass to be sharp, don't you? You absolutely do. Is, he There's does no point having doing... a blunt one, is there? No, blood cutlers. I saw blood cutlers. Yeah, he's hopping and dancing around in the in the metal shop. While he's yeah, yeah he's, he's also shopping. observing absolutely terrible eyewear discipline as he's got sparks flying off the sharper thing. He's got it's not, not a no health eye protection. Safety dream. Is it's it, not a health and safety dream. No. He's also got what he's jar will a white protect. Peter vest on, yes. which is it's that's up to him. You said it's it, not his me. choice. Yes. I did indeed. <laughs> yeah. um, but there's something about it that you just think no one else can do this. Mm. Also, nothing else can make me feel like this music mm. and I had it on a Friday morning thinking you're not going to get in the zone here you know it's Friday you know that you need yeah. this is this is Saturday mm. Sunday afternoon evening and just getting mellow with something but it still transports you into that area in that special space that dub does when it's done really well so is this spiritual music for the spiritually empty i.e. me if you're not kind of in any way tuned to spiritual things is this the way you can get to it I would say very much yes. Okay. All <laughs> I right. think you're getting to it. I think listen more and you will become that... Um, I don't think I can face the character. idea of Rasta me. I think that yeah. will be pushing it too far. Pete, <laughs> you got the hair. I right? haven't got the hair. I'll never have it again. Pete, um, it's not often that the kind of the pillars of black music get the same treatment as the pillars of country and rock like it's not often you get a johnny cash scenario mm. a legend in the in the kind of uh, in the twilight or the kind of uh shall we say in the summer of their career gets to work with somebody of a previous generation and they build up something incredible it did happen uh, with gil scott heron should we have more of this should we because like every newspaper every day reminds us that these people these these this talent is not around forever if the talent's good enough then yeah bring it on uh i i, I didn't hadn't heard much Horace Andy apart from the Massive Attack albums. Yeah, some of the songs on the album are total rearrangements of some of his older ones. Yeah, and so I was getting on Spotify and comparing the new arrangements mm-hmm. versus the old ones. And they, it's so great that you can get a song that sounded great in the in the old reggae way, it's a bit crackly and a bit kind of yeah. you know the studios that they had at the, at the time, and putting this new treatment on them, uh, yeah. arranging them for now, yeah, is just a, a lovely. 
that is the thing, isn't it? Because he just doesn't just faithfully reproduce what mm. records sounded like mm. in 1977. There is a, it, it has a, it's got a modern sensibility, electronic embellishments here, there, and everywhere. It's got a real sort of good contemporary. But it still has this absolute beautiful, you know, it um, dignifies the bass by ramping up anything mm. on the bass level. Yeah, yes. you know, you really hear it properly. Adrian Sherwood is not Mickey Mouse. No, my, my crappy, my crappy desktop speakers have never sounded so alive. <laughs> they, they really <laughs> just Your computer yeah. walking around the desk on its own. <laughs> so we're recommending this, aren't we? Absolutely. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Let's have another track from one of our guests. He's back, back, back. Norman Blake. What's your current favourite tune, and why do you love it? Tell us about it. Okay. Well, I've picked a, a song called. Song by a, uh-huh. an artist band called Workspace, and actually this is a bit of me sort of promoting a friend really because it's um, the artist is a person called Finlay McDonald who was a member, a touring member of Teenage Fan Club and has been on a couple of our records. And Finlay uh, sort of got into a job in education, uh, but he's been making music all along, and this is his latest project, and I just really like it. Um, he also actually. You know, when you asked me to choose something, I chose this, and it got me thinking about another another band that he had called Music and Movement, and they made an album uh, which is actually available on Spotify, and other streaming services too, uh, and that's really that's really great as well. But I just really like the music that Finley's making. It's kind of I think this is his take on sort of bands like Noi, and there's a bit Stereo Lab in there, and and it's just really nice. I really think it's just a lovely song. Well, this is Song by Workspace, and the way they spell their name is there's an underscore between the R and the K. So is that, does that mean it's pronounced Workspace? Well, I don't know, like a kind of Norman Collier kind of glitch in the middle yeah, of pronouncing. Well, yeah, Workspace. Yeah. Workspace, yeah. yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Workspace, yeah, there's something yes. like that, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it's going on the playlist too, and here is an excerpt. Regular listeners know we also ask our guests to bring in their favourite songs of all time to add to our playlist. And why not? We say, Norman Blake, what have you chosen? Well, you know, I think um, the thing with favourite songs is I'm sure all of us have a number of songs that are our favourites. So I, I had to of course, sort of yes. pick, pick um, something that meant a lot to me. And uh, so I picked That Summer Feeling by Jonathan Richmond, released in 1983. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was, uh, I, you know, I've liked a been a fan of everything that Jonathan Richmond's done. I love the Modern Lovers. This is a couple of albums after he'd sort of ditched the rock and roll band and mm-hmm. made more sort of uh, introspective music. The introspective yeah. made the wrong word, but more personal and intimate music. This is a song about nostalgia. I think it's in his thirties when he wrote it, but it's looking back to your youth and uh, and I, I, the lyrics really, really beautiful. I mean, you know. Some of the lines are, are incredible. Uh, the verses, I mean, each verse is brilliant. I love this verse. When the Oldsmobile has got the top down on it, when the catamaran has got the drop down on it, when the flat of the land has got the crop down on it, what I now proclaim is sort of hard to name. That summer feeling is going to haunt you the rest of your life. It's, it's a really amazing song. Beautiful. Wow. A song to make grown men cry, which is and, what I'm doing right now. And women too. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you, Norm. You're most welcome.
I'm Pete Brown. What have you chosen? My all-time favourite song is Temptation by New Order. Mm. And this goes back to when it first came out. The, 1982 was the year I got a digital clock radio for Ooh. Christmas. And it had this little function <laughs> where I, I needed it because I had to get up at 6 o'clock and do a paper round. Right. And so I'd, I'd put the alarm on. You could put this sleep function on so that you could set a number of minutes and it would turn off mm. after that. And I, I remember falling asleep one night. Uh, listening to John Peel and then waking back up and you know if when you listen there's some science about music in sleep how it mm. goes really deep in into your subconscious and I remember waking back up going what the fuck is this yes. how can anything sound this glorious so yes. I was kind of half dreaming half hearing it for the first time and it's just the sound of a band that know they're creating something awesome but they're not quite in control of it the yeah. the wheels could fall off any second, uh, and the wheels just about stay on it. Mm. And it's just and ever since then, because I loved it so much to start with, it's been the soundtrack of every great moment of my life. So it oh. just it just gets better every year because it's like, oh yeah, remember that party when we were eighteen and we all just sat around playing the door, percussion <laughs> 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 on the door. I remember that time when we were at university we did this to it, and so it's just kind of just got this like laser varnish over it now as well so yeah. there's, there's just no, no there's no shifting it basically and this is of course the proper original version not the later ones where they messed around with it no. the middle with it but drums, drums. It's, it's the one where you can hear Barney yelp because someone's been outside and got a snowball and stuck it down the back of his neck just <laughs> there before you go. Well, we're going to put it on the on the rolling playlist listen carefully for that bit the link to the playlist as you know is in the show notes and it's on Tidal as well as Spotify now isn't it finally football Gaza is a two-part BBC Two documentary about the talent, life, rise, fall and meaning of the player generally regarded as the most gifted of his generation. Episode one goes out this coming Wednesday, the 13th of April. From his early days at Newcastle United to Spurs, Lazio and England, from the outrageous goals to the dentist chair to the benders with Chris Evans and Danny Kelly, Paul Gascoigne's story is a parable of fame, money and tabloid pressure in the deranged 80s and 90s. Everybody thinks they know this story, but do they? Samson Collins' two-part film contains contributions from Gascoigne's friends and family, his former agents and advisors, former teammates and coaches, and some of the tabloid journalists who wrote about him. What will we think of it? Here's something to get you in the mood. And here's Gascoigne. Brilliant play! Take a bow for that! That's unbelievable! And in a minute, it's all gone England's way. Seaman at one end, Gascoigne at the other. An absolute glory for Terry Venable's team. elsewhere and Paul Gascoigne will be in the news again but so too will David Seaman Terry Venable's team have come up trumps on the big day Pete, the uh, the sweeping sports documentary is having a bit of a moment right now, isn't it? Gods of snooker, yes. etc. And this is very much limited to events on the pitch it's more about tabloid Britain, what did you make of it? Did you enjoy it? I, I don't sure enjoy is the right word, I found mm. it incredibly moving Yes. I, found, I found it really upsetting. I was, I was quite, um, I was, you know, sort of a bit tearful at, at times. I mean, he's obviously a problematic figure. The first thing Liz said was, well, he put his wife in hospital. It's like, yeah, no one can excuse yes. the, 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 the the errors that he did and the things that he did and the abuse that he caused. But, God, you see how he got there. It's, mm. uh, I mean, he's just so lost. He needs a father figure. He's a child. Yeah. Uh, and he very plaintively says at one point, I just want to be one of the lads. Yeah. And it's like you can't because you're the most talented, gifted footballer on earth yeah. at that time. And some of the interview footage is extraordinary. You get people, I don't know if they're aware they're doing it or not, but everyone from Jim Rosenthal to Terry Wogan, 
kind of gets into this father figure role mm. with him. Even before he starts going off the rails, they can see that it's it's mm. inevitable that he's going to. Yeah, they're um, all worried about him. Everybody he talks to is worried about him. Like, stay calm, guys. He's like, oh, yeah, I'll be fine, I'll be fine. Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to go like that. And of course he does. Yeah. Uh, and that's the, that's the kind of the proper meaning of the word tragedy is it's, it's preordained. Yes. Mm. He's got no choice but to, to eventually kind of fall in the way that he did. Yeah. I mean, I agree. I, I just find it incredibly moving in the sense that even if you hadn't followed the story the way the likes of us at our age had followed it. Everything is before you, absolutely foreshadowed. Larking about with a bottle of brown ale in the very first few scenes, these new stories going, he's the highest paid footballer of all time on £4,000 a week. And you're just going to snigger into yourself, but knowing where it's going to go. Mm-hmm. It's a vast exercise in, in, in dramatic irony. But I've seen part two, which is 100% the tabloid story. Right. And it's absolutely terrifying to see you know, set out before you the things that you lived through, sort of half watched and kind of passively accepted when they're put together a full charge sheet against what the tabloids did to him is astonishing. And it made the Britain of the time look like an alien country to me, even though I was I was kind of there. I mean, what, what did you think about the, the picture of Britain that we've got? Because we've got like, here is a guy who pops up with an amazing talent is immediate. I think I think one of the Sun reporters said we we, we owned in body and soul. Yes. That's right. That's right. And it's it's from the start. It's just uh, they talk about the, the competitiveness between Robert Maxwell's mirror and, and the mm. sun. And some of the most revealing things are when, when you go footage inside the sun's offices and some of the motivational yes. slogans they've got on the wall. Yeah. It's like, do it we're gonna do it to them before they do it to us and and things like that. And it's just Gaza's just a, a pawn. Is as, as mm. soon as they see him, they're like, Right, here's a story. Uh and it he's just a is a commodity. He's a commodity yeah. to them. And yeah. they just use him and wear him out. The bizarre thing is that it's accompanied by all this kind of con- these contemporary interviews of, of uh the tabloid reporters go, oh, we loved him so much. He was so great. He was such a son character. We loved him. We loved him. Yeah, and then you destroyed him. Mm. Designedly. Mm. Sean, what did you think? I mean, I'm not going to say, did you enjoy it? Because obviously, <laughs> not enjoyable. I mean, I think it's incredible. And I think that, I hope that we do get to see more of this because it does follow in the Gods of Snooker line of, we have enough time in retrospect now to see what happened to mm. people who were treated as brands mm. when they clearly couldn't cope and were treated as you know, enormous money-making machines for absolutely everybody. When, it, you know, this person isn't swimming, they are drowning in it at this point. I mean, that the tabloid stuff is incredible. And it's what's so good about the film is, for one thing, the, it's voiceovers. You don't see the people talking. Mm. So we see all this footage. And there is so much footage of Gaza, yeah. not just on pitch, but all the endorsements that he made, him falling out of nightclubs, him then, you know, just larking about and just being, say, one of the lads. Um, But there's a thing, I think it is in The Sun, is it make it first, make it fast, make it accurate. Yes. And Uh, again, You've got probably one of those three. (laughs) You've probably been first because you've (laughs) fucked everybody else over. (laughs) Linda Lasardi comes across, was a very, very good friend of his because her husband was, comes across as this sort of rather wonderful angel figure. She really does come across as a a good... a decent human yeah, being. Yeah, she understood what the pressures were. She understood what that horrible fame thing was like in the 90s when tabloids, when you're in the tabloids every single day. And she really tried, mm. her and her husband, to look after him. But as someone once said, one of the managers does say, he's a grown man, we couldn't look after him all the time. You still think, mm, you could try. Yes, but there is this thing called a duty of care, surely. Mm, yeah. um, I think it's astonishing. I enjoyed it in the sense that it's a really, really well made documentary, but it also mm. highlights that time of the 90s where it was money before 
before everything else well, within sport and in what the media was doing and it it, it kills everybody in its path well there, it? are, there are two that key mo- two key 90s moments that it focuses on one of the tears at Italy yeah. 90 yes. when he gets mm. a yellow card which means he knows and the... we all remember watching it at the time yeah. and you're, you're yeah. thinking actually this is far deeper this runs really deep clip, this person far he's, more than he's, we he's, 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 he's in tears on the pitch and yeah. Gary Lineker turns oh. to look to yes. the bench and just makes the kind of spinning finger by the temple yeah, he's like yeah, he's yeah. lost mm. it he's cracked mm. he's gone and then 90, Euro 96 Gaza's in tears and you've got you know in parallel to that you've got three lions which for my money remains a, a one of the most damaging things ever done to yeah. this country. Yeah. 30 years of had stop whinging what you've got to whinge about. I looked at it and I thought, is this the genesis of the self-pitying England that has ruined us, really? The idea that we sit around moping and telling ourselves what victims we are, all seen through the avatar of Gaza and Gaza's tears. Ah, oh, Gaza's tears. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. That's what made him. I mean, what's extraordinary, that footage where he apparently has had no sleep, he's had an argument with a wife, he's just been on a plane, you know, he goes off to Euro Disney or something and then quickly comes back, he's pissed out of his head and he scores that amazing yeah. goal he, and says after time, I couldn't remember it. Things like that and just make this documentary. Well, you see good. over and over again but think, moments where he does something on the pitch that looks absolutely not just supernatural but as if he's yeah. in control of something outside yeah, of himself. Absolutely. And... He, you know, he, you know, he dummies three players at once and himself, and still picks it up and scores. And you look at it. And, I mean, I, I saw him when he's playing for Spurs. I yeah. think, I think they might have been up against Derby County, yeah. and he got a free kick just yeah. outside the area. And he pointed to where it was going to go. He, he mm. got locked eyes with the keeper, yeah. and he said, "It's going there, right? You know, top yeah. right corner." And the keeper was terrified, and, and yeah. he just walked up and just put it straight exactly where he said it would, beyond the keeper's fingers. And it was it was Jedi stuff. Yeah. It was unbelievable. And that's the stuff that makes it watchable. Yeah. It, it, when you see the, a, a montage of his, of his greatest yeah. moments, yeah. It, it is up there the, with George Best. The amazing skill of the film, I think, is that it shows that this gift actually was a curse. He wasn't in control of it. It was going to do what it was going to do, and he was going to be collateral damage to it, mm. which amazes me. I mean, it is there is tremendous pathos throughout the whole thing, and I, I think underlined by a great score by Blank Mass, mm-hmm. who used to be in Fuck Buttons. Oh, what I thought was fantastic about the score is it, it evolves musically. So in the in the late eighties, you've got that feel of eighties electro pop. It mm. moves mm. through. It moves through rave. It moves mm. through techno in the early nineties, and you're, you're hearing World in Motion and Three Lines mixed yeah. in with original yeah. stuff that's that's themed around it. But the real standouts are the kind of very poignant sound beds and just pieces of, you know, sort of hanging pads, hanging synth pads in mm. the air when Gazer is a horribly alone. And there's one particular scene where his divorce has just been finalised and he scores an incredible goal against Moldova, I think, mm. and just looks like a man completely lost. He's just wandering around the pitch. His eyes are blank. He's staring. He's, he looks like somebody's wandering around the Somme. He's just he's done something incredible and yeah. he doesn't even know who he yeah. is anymore. Yeah. I think this is a fantastic film. And anybody listening to this podcast, even if you're not interested in football at all, you'll be fascinated by it because it's a picture of Britain and mm-hmm. how this... You know, we allowed this kind of gigantic parasitical growth that is the tabloid press to warp our society out of shape. I mean, Rebecca Wade comes out of it monstrously. She insinuates herself into both Gaza and Cheryl um, Gascoigne's confidences mm. and uses it to her own end. The repugnant Piers Morgan in the second episode, he's he's so foul and he, he sits there smirking away saying, I don't believe we build them up to knock them down. We build them up and their own weaknesses knock them down. Well, that's not what we've just seen. We've yeah. seen you yeah, yeah. tear to pieces this guy who was supposedly your golden goose without an atom of empathy at all. 
And, well, how can a weakness destroy somebody unless there's somebody battering away at it? Mm. So mm. it actually made me feel not just kind of ill at what, the way we'd behaved in this country, you know, with, with our press, but also that in the end it comes back to the people mm. who buy the papers, who were happy to see this guy torn to shreds for their entertainment. It's amazing. I think everybody should watch it. I agree. Mm, definitely. Hello, I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now? The politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? with me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez, out now, wherever you get your podcasts. And with that, we're at the end of the podcast and it's closing time chatter. What will we be discussing as we slowly try and dribble a ball and it doesn't really work, <laughs> then it rolls down again, if you're me anyway. Pete, what's your closing time chatter? It Rather predictably, it's uh, that beer sales this week returned to pre-pandemic levels. <laughs> so right. hey. in, in, in lockdown, we started, We in lockdown when pubs were closed and we were doing our drinking at home, we had a massive shift towards uh, spirits, cocktails, wine. Okay. People didn't want beer, uh, cocktail recipes were the most search items on Google in this time two years ago. And as we've gone back to the pub, we've remembered that a nice time in a pub is a long, slow drink, not a couple of quick cocktails getting yeah. smashed. Yeah. So gin sales are down by a third uh, compared wow. to what they were. Yeah. And beer has just got back to where it was. So here's to long, pleasant afternoons in the what pub. What is the average beer that the average person drinks, if that is, is something that we can... Uh, well, another thing is it's been... Do as an average. It's been premiumised. Uh, right. we've, we've gone back to the pub. And we want to drink something slightly nicer than we did before. Okay. Uh, so best summed up as one brewer who owns a couple of hundred pubs said, what we're seeing is people used to drink Carling are now drinking San, Mi- San Miguel. Okay. So a nice, quaffable lager. And just a couple of pints, ease you into the evening. Exactly. Andrew, what's your closing time chatter? I have a horrible feeling I may have mentioned this on the podcast before, but I'm going to give it a go again because it's a really good one. Scientists... Those wacky oh, people, them, them yes. again, yeah. uh, have um, taken the patterns used by spiders to make spider webs and translated them into music. So <laughs> you can now listen to what a spider web sounds like. Yes. It is uh, a, a team at MIT used the mathematical relationships that different breeds of spider will use and translated them into effectively a musical notation mm-hmm. system so that you could kind of get a sense of the, you know, the way that pat- music is basically a pattern recognition system, isn't it? So you can recognise yeah. the pattern of the, of the sound through, yes. uh, through a different medium. And I, mean, I think we're going to play a little bit of it in a second, but you will hear that basically spiders have just signed a massive deal with Warp Records because... <laughs> That's what I was going to ask. Yeah, what record label would they be on? You answered um, it. Because yeah. they're, they're, they're grasp of abstract electronica, <laughs> which wanders through a broad palette of different tonal relationships, shall yes. we say. It sounds really weird, but kind of soothing and kind of You'd nice. You'd think they'd be more gothy, wouldn't you? You would think they'd be more gothy. Yeah. You'd yeah. think they'd be somewhat doomy. So if spiders could play a gig, where would they play? Where's the dream venue for the spiders then? I think it would be a streaming gig on the web, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Can't believe you went there. <laughs>
Let's have a listen. Let's have a listen to a bit of it. Sean, what's your closing time chatter? Well, something is going to be started, and it's called the British Pop Archive. It's uh, just starting with, apparently, Rob Gretton from Out of Factory Records left a huge archive of lyrics and music and ephemera. So there will be handwritten lyrics from Ian Curtis from Out of Joy Division. There is going to be items from Granada TV's history, which includes Coronation Street. It is housed at the Manchester John Rylands Library, but they are asking, I think, for people to say, hang on a minute, I've got this, I've got that. So they are going to expand it. There are three people involved, one of whom is John Savage, two two of whom are Hannah Barker and Matt Bancroft. So hopefully that means it's going to be quite eclectic. And do do we need this? Am I asking? Well, I was just we thinking, didn't like, have this already. If John Savage is involved, it'd probably be pretty good because uh, yeah. Sav knows what he's on about and uh, has is discerning on these things. Yes. I think, um, yeah, I think it's a pretty good idea. Because uh, Manchester, am I right? They already have a lot of Delia Derbyshire, I think, within that library as well. There are yeah. places and you know and hubs in Manchester, and maybe it gets brought together, and we do actually get something that sort of celebrates the pop culture archive we have. Thank you. Good idea. And that is the end of the podcast. Uh, thank you to Norman Blake, who's had to rush off to play his uh, sweaty rock and roll gig. Uh, thanks to Pete Brown for joining us in the Culture Bunker, which is equally sweaty. <laughs> <laughs> yes, thank you. It's been great to be here. My first time in the bunker. In the actual bunker. And I'm, I'm impressed bunker. by the bunker. I can see why he changed the name of the podcast to celebrate the bunker. <laughs> Remember, listeners, you can get all the tunes on our rolling playlist. The link's at the top of the show notes. Uh, thank you, Sean, for joining me. Thank you. Uh, from me, Sean, producers Alex Reese, Yelda Sofronevich, Alina Ganatra, and the whole backroom team. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. The Culture Bunker was produced and presented by Sean Pattenden and Andrew Harrison. The producers were Yelda Sofronevich and me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Culture Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>